Welcome to the 99 Topics for the CCFP Exam podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Brady Bouchard. Dyspepsia, I thought, was a good idea. Perfect. Yeah. Oh, to Bouchard, dyspepsia. It's it's another one of those uh, like huge in family practice topics, but not a particularly huge topic itself. Exactly. Exactly. But you know what? We've all had patients that have had this, right? So this is something that's fairly common. Oh, super common. Yeah. Going, uh, we're going through it and stuff because dyspepsia is uber common. We've all had people with upset stomachs or, you know, dyspepsic sort of dyspeptic sort of symptoms, and and it's good to get a solid approach to that. And especially with, uh, you know, the, our national epidemic of obesity. There you go. All right. So dyspepsia, Doctor Bouchard. Yeah, I got really confused in residency over this, to be honest, because um, you use a bunch of different terms interchangeably um right. docs do and definitely patients do and yeah. like so like what is dyspepsia versus gastritis versus reflux versus like peptic ulcer disease even like i mean that one's a little bit more specific but everybody just calls it all kind of the same thing and, and they are different things they are different things and, and and you see each one of those can have are different etiologies but the thing is when a patient walks into your office the question is um, um, do they have some type of condition? You understand it's very difficult to clinically tease one from the other. Yeah, absolutely. And they, they overlap significantly. Say, does that person have any red flags um, um, to indicate any significant serious pathology that I may want to stick a scope in their throat to take a look, right? Exactly. Uh, that's probably what, what initially is one of the most important things to do. It is very difficult to tell, you know, someone with necessarily reflux from GERD, from something like a peptic ulcer disease. Sometimes it's clearer than others, but a lot of the time it's ambiguous, right? Yeah, and the absolutely. question is, it's kind of like when we were talking about back pain, right? Like the question is, is that when do I... I have to be worried about this, right? Um, when do I have to be worried about this? Or what are some potential red flags that may necessitate a quick look doing that first uh, first thing? So what are some red flags, the sexy Dr. Brady Bouchard? Yeah, absolutely. So um, age of onset after the age of 55 is quoted, but essentially, if you haven't had any reflux or gastritis or GERD, we'll just call it all dyspepsia. If you haven't had yes. any dyspepsia symptoms your whole life and then you get it after the age of 55, probably a red flag. Um, exactly. Significant unintended weight loss, decreased appetite, uh, vomiting, especially if you're vomiting blood. I think that one's pretty obvious. Yeah. Um, if it, family history of GI cancers, they should probably be scoped earlier rather than later. And then uh, dysphagia would be the other one that I'd yeah, definitely. Very good list and stuff. You know, I, I'm throwing there, you know, someone has crazy amounts of Molina or those types of things. You yeah, know, that absolutely. Something that, uh, that definitely is a red flag because you're really trying to say, does this person need the scope, right? Yeah. And I like what you said at the beginning, Brady Bouchard, that proves that looks and brains can go together in the complete package, Brady Bouchard, <laughs> is that you said, let's call it dyspepsia, right? There's GERD, there's peptic ulcer disease, but these are very difficult to tease one apart just clinically, right? Let's call it all dyspepsia. And then the first question in our decision tree is, does this person have 
have concerning symptoms to warrant a scope, right? Exactly. That's basically your first decision tree. And Brady Bouchard's list is an excellent list that provides that. So if you have concerning symptoms, the person needs an EGD, right? You need to take a look, right? And really what you're making sure is that they don't have something like a cancer or a high-grade ulcer that you can do something about. Exactly. Yep, absolutely. Or Barrett's or something like that, right? That needs to be followed up. Yeah, exactly. And and I think that's the key is uh, w- with all these conditions that are super common, generally benign, uh, exactly what you said, it's all about red flags because you can't investigate everybody. Um, yeah. You can treat everybody. Um, but usually for these types of super common conditions, you'll make the clinical diagnosis You'll, you know, trial, uh, do a trial of treatment, um, and then you can go on to investigation if you, if necessary. There you go. There you go. And I think that's a critical, I think that's a critical point that you mentioned. So the first part of our decision tree is sort of assessing whether or not the likelihood that this person is going to need an EGD based on the presence of any red flags, right? Which the vast majority of people are not going to have, right? Kind of similar to our back pain, uh, um, um, back pain talk. You don't want to be too willy nilly with the EGDs, right? But you want to make sure that people that need them, because there's a high enough risk of an alternate diagnosis of badness that you're you're actually, um, um, you're actually catching those people, right? And also what you want to do is ask yourself, there's known factors that aggravate kind of dyspepsia, GERD, peptic ulcer disease, like the person smoking or the person's on NSAIDs, et cetera, et cetera. So you want to make sure that it's, hi, I have dyspepsia, but I take naproxen for no good reason, right? Yeah. Um, you probably want to see about adjusting that a little bit, right? Or if the person is smoking, definitely another very good reason to get that person to quit smoking and stuff. Hey, sir, this can make your dyspepsia a bit better, right? Yeah, for sure. And, and, and to differentiate between occasional and said, so you have a headache every month versus, yeah, I'm doing you know naproxen twice a day every day. For, for whatever. Well, I mean, even though naproxen is considered probably the safest NSAID from that point of view, um, you know, any regular NSAID use will lead to it. Um, al- alcohol is the other one I always ask about as well. Perfect, perfect. Excellent. Yeah, so like like lifestyle sort of factors, right? I'm always aware of people who have like NSAIDs in their blister pack. I'm not sure if you see that a lot. But <laughs> yeah. you, know, you have the NSAID, you know, someone said, oh, you had a bit of X, you know, painful transient condition X. And the next thing you know, the person's on naproxen for no good reason. It's in their blister pack. And they're like, oh, my leg got broken, you know, 12 years ago. And my doctor gave it to me for a month afterwards. And the next thing I know, it was in my blister pack for the last 12 years, right? So again, you know, watch out for things like that, right? Because that that can be something that can be easily modified, right? So so definitely, you're going to be considering these are things that clearly can exacerbate dyspepsia, dyspeptic symptoms, whether they're GERD or peptic ulcer disease. You want to make sure that you're applying that good lifestyle management for everybody. Yeah, absolutely. Perfect. And then I guess we should even take a step back and see. Everybody kind of takes it for granted that this is a fairly easy diagnosis to make when you come in. But like, what do patients actually complain about? At least in my head, I kind of break it into two, and and they overlap. But kind of the peptic ulcer disease presentation versus the kind of reflux presentation. And the way I really keep it in my head is is when patients are having reflux symptoms. Eating more makes it better because essentially you artificially decrease the acid. So you find people that overeat or find that they need to eat right away after already eating um, in order to get rid of their symptoms or they're popping Tums all the time, that sort of thing, versus the peptic ulcer disease presentation, which is, uh, you can think of the, all, 
the ulcer, anything that, uh, you know, touches the ulcer or affects the ulcer, um, will cause symptoms. So they get postprandial fullness. Um, they get early satiation. Um, they're not eating as much. They're anorexic and they get epigastric pain and burning kind of regardless after eating, um, you know, with every meal because the ulcer is getting irritated from essentially your stomach contract. Yeah, perfect, perfect. I love Brady Bouchard as the expert on physiology. Oh goodness, no, not at all, man. But but yeah, it's the it, it's the overeating symptoms or it's the kind of undereating symptoms is is the way I kind of break it up in my head. Exactly, exactly, and that's I, I like how you do that, Brady Bouchard. And you know, and, and there's also a big percentage of people where they can have symptoms of both. You know what I mean and stuff. So clinic can be sometimes hard to tease one from the other. Yeah, absolutely. Yep. Perfect, perfect. All right, so let's say I'm dealing with a person, they don't have any red flags, um, you took them off their NSAIDs, um, you, they don't drink, um, they're, they're, and they're, they're coming in with these dyspepsic symptoms, right? Whether it's more birdie sort of sounding symptoms or whether it's more peptic ulcer disease sounding symptoms. Let's say they're a vague historian, right? Yeah, um, sure. Vague symptoms, right? So what are you next going to do? But there's no red flag because this is actually the, the majority of patients that come in and see us or so. Yeah, so probably the next thing I'd ask is kind of the frequency of symptoms. So if this is happening every day, all day, or if this is happening, you know, kind of once a month sort of thing, um, yeah. that, that's going to guide what I kind of advise for treatment or prescribe for treatment. Um, I think that the people with occasional reflux symptoms and and the Choosing Wisely campaign would agree with that is that, um, you know, an, an oral antacid or the occasional H2 blocker is probably reasonable. Um, and, and in those patients, uh, starting them on a, on a proton pump inhibitor, a PPI is probably going to do more harm, even though it's a pretty safe medication. Um, but if they're coming to see you, they probably have pretty persistent symptoms. Um, and in the absence of red flags, I'll usually try uh, and discuss with the patient. We do eight weeks of a trial of a PPI, um, and follow them up after that and just see how they're doing. Either they're like, often they're a hundred percent better. Um, if they're 0% better, then that's the time to go on to endoscopy, um, just to rule out some nastiness. Um, if they're most of the way better, you can consider either adding a H2 blocker or increasing the dose or doing twice a day PPI and, and kind of have that chat with the patient. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So I like your approach here. So basically what we're choosing wisely say, and I love that campaign. That is absolutely phenomenal. I think everybody should follow that. Is that it can be in the realm of quote unquote normal to have, you know, a day a month where you have mild symptoms, right? So would I be like quick to order H. pylori serology or label that person as symptomatic, symptomatic? No, I'd probably say, you know, exactly as you would try some Tums, try some PRN antacids and see how well you do, right? This is really with people with more persistent symptoms, right? Yeah, um, absolutely. So, and definitely there's evidence for using a trial of, uh, of in people with more persistent symptoms. This is not the person who has mild symptoms for a day a month, right? That doesn't really interfere with their life or um, um, that much, right? Um, that can be in the realm of normal. We've all personally experienced the, those types of symptoms before, right? Um, it definitely would support um, a trial of um, um, an H2 blocker or a PPI, right? If the person has more sy symptoms. The point is, is that after the trial, the person should get better, 
right? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, you don't want people to be on PPIs for for six years with no good reason and you haven't scoped them, right? Like if you have something benign and it's just an irritation or something like that and a six to eight week trial of a PPI is all you're going to need, then it should be all you're going to need. If that person still has persistent symptoms, then they need to be more investigated, right? After that trial of their PPI. Yeah, exactly. And and something I heard from a gastroenterologist in residency that stuck with me is this whole dyspepsia syndrome is, is a relatively new thing, and it's a, a a syndrome of excess in the in the first world. That really, what we should be doing, and we and we don't, and and to be honest, some patients won't or can't, is be modifying the risk factors rather than putting people onto long term and sometimes lifelong treatment with a BPI. Because yeah, it works well for symptoms, but if you can get people to lose weight stop drinking, stop smoking, reduce the stress in their life, their symptoms are going to go away. Exactly, exactly. It's just that those are all hard things to do. So so we end up treating long-term instead. Exactly, exactly. And there's that note to be made. Like if you have symptoms, your symptoms, and you put people on a PPI, after that trial of six to eight weeks, their symptoms should improve significantly, right? Absolutely. Symptoms come back or are not improving, then you need to scope them, right? Because they could have a Barrett's, they could have something else going on, and the PPI could just be masking those particular symptoms. Yeah, exactly. And also endoscopy at, at six to eight weeks is useful to do that biopsy, to do the rapid urease test, to look for that H. pylori, because in areas of high H. pylori prevalence, which I think is most of Canada now, or certainly where I practice, the yeah. HP serology that we do, I find to be less than useful because almost everybody is positive. Exactly. And and a lot of people who come in with these symptoms have tried HP eradication therapy before. And so you're not really, you're not sure if the bug's still there or whether, you know, that's the primary cause of what's going on. And I'd love, and I tried to get endoscopy for these people to, to prove to myself that the bug's still there. Exactly, exactly, and stuff. Yeah. So, and, and that's the thing. Um, and I would agree with you totally, right? In areas where every, like, there's high H. pylori prevalence, right? You often find that the serology itself is positive, right? Yeah. And, and the thing is, that doesn't mean people have active H. pylori infection right now, right? Um, which is a big cause of duodenal ulcers and, and less so for gastric ulcers, right? Um, um, and that becomes, because you'll have a lot of people walking around with mild abnormality with these, with the, with positive H. pylori sutrology, and they end up getting necessarily over-treated for H. pylori therapy. And then, because you're giving everybody antibiotics, now we're ending up with H. pylori that's resistant, right? Um, um, that means it's becoming harder to treat for people who actually do have infection, right? Um, um, so that's becoming a bigger issue, especially where we're, um, we're, we're practicing or so, um, 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 especially where we're, um, we're, we're practicing. So I think we need to be aware of that, right? If people have persistent symptoms and they're on a trial of a PPI and they've completed that trial and their symptoms are persistent or recur, they should probably be scoped because the surgeon can do proper biopsies, tell you what's happening and they can get the test to see whether or not they actually harbor H. pylori infection, right? Um, um, actually harbor um, um, H. pylori um, infection. Doing serologies in regions where the rates of H. pylori infection are ridiculously high, like in our region, it's only going to be of limited benefit, right? Because a lot of people who are don't have H. pylori right now are going to have positive serology because they probably were exposed to it in the past. Exactly. Yep. Beautiful point, Mike. So, so you just have to be cautious. Um, 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 you just have to be uh, 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 cautious or so about this thing. Yeah. Have you, do you have any experience in Ontario with the stool antigen test? 
Not really. Like, it's very hard to actually get specific H. pylori testing um, just in our region. Um, um, urea breath, te breath test works um, 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 well. Stool antigen testing works uh, uh, fairly well. Um, I just have really haven't had any experience because we can't do the test um, in our region or so. Exactly. I was curious on that because apparently that's a, a better test, not that I've looked into it, um, but as a higher sensitivity for, you know, acute ongoing infection. Exactly. But again, we don't have access to it here. I don't know where in Canada we might or may not, but exactly exactly and stuff so um um and that's the um and that's the thing that you want to you want to put emphasis on or so right so when you have somebody with um when you have somebody with dyspepsia it's really your first step is well lifestyle for everybody and you're really ruling out those red flags right and then you're deciding okay the majority of your patients are not going to have any red flags if they just you, you you assess what is their symptom burden right if their symptom burden is mild and they're not really having then a prn you know antacid could be fine you don't want to jump the gun on the on the ppi therapy really the ppis are more for people with persistent symptoms right if you have persistent symptoms, you can give a trial of a PPI. If you fail that trial, so i.e. you still have symptoms after eight weeks or your symptoms recur after you stop, you should probably get scoped to make sure there's nothing badness going on, right? And at the time of scope, they can do um, they can do biopsies for H. pylori or more advanced testing for H. pylori. Yeah, absolutely. Beautiful point. Does point. that sound like a reasonable, um, 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 does that sound like a reasonable uh, uh, approach or so? Yeah, no, I think that's totally reasonable. The uh, um, other uh, point for the exam that's in this topic, uh, which I'm glad they included, is a different uh, setting and a different presentation, but it's your patients that come in, um, query ACS, and whether or not you give them a pink lady or chalk it up to dyspepsia. Yeah, exactly. Well, we know that that like the pink lady for differentiating dyspeptic sort of pain from ACS is pretty crap and stuff. Yeah, so you absolutely. shouldn't rely on it too, too, uh, too, too much. You know, there's a, because so many people have both, right? They can have active ACS and be dyspeptic as well, and they're going to say, "Oh, my pain got a lot better." That doesn't take away the fact that they could have ACS. So it, it has a very low discriminating potential for for. So, i.e., you shouldn't be all that reassured by someone's response to a pink lady. Um, um that shouldn't sleep. That shouldn't allow you to sleep better at night. Yeah, I think that's the money line right there is if you're working up AC, ACS patients in emergency. And certainly if you get an ACS patient on the exam, um, the, the pink you can try a pink lady. Lots of protocols now exclude it. Like our local protocol excludes the use of a pink lady on purpose until yeah. ACS is being ruled out. Because, you know, gastritis, dyspepsia symptoms are not going to kill you. Yeah. Um, you can live with that discomfort and it may falsely reassure some clinicians. So I actually like the idea of excluding it on your kind of ACS workup. But, exactly. the, but the point is, is that, yeah, if the symptom, if you do choose to use it and the symptoms go away, you definitely still need to continue with your workup that way. And I actually tried yes. to look up kind of the, again, the pathophysiology of this a little bit. There's not really a lot of good evidence either way. And there's actually some studies that say that it actually is a decent discriminator. The caveat to that is there's way more studies that say that it's probably not a good discriminator. Um, so the kind of weight of evidence is that we shouldn't be using it. There was one study um, that I'll put in the study notes, just more for curiosity than anything, saying that um, a, the lower the pH in the stomach, the lower the anginal threshold. So that raising the pH with something like a pink lady actually might help because it you know, literally actually acts on the heart to... Um, to um, raise the anginal or the pain threshold. 
Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. So, so what do you, what is it about H. pylori serology? Like, do you do it much where you practice and stuff or, or yes or no? Uh, it's very clinician dependent. I'd have to say I very yes. rarely do it because I don't, I don't find it change, you know, like any test we should be doing, it should change your, your clinical treatment algorithm or your outcome for the patient. I find whether it's positive or not, I'm still going, if I've never seen them before, I'm still going to do a trial of PPI. I'm yeah. in, at least in our demographic, I'm probably going to end up sending them for endoscopy because A, it's available and B, a lot of people here don't respond super well to standard dose PPIs. Um, and the, the HP pack or the, or the regiment that we use up here, I also don't find very effective for those patients where it is chosen to as a trial. So exactly what I honestly, what I end up doing here is a trial of 68 weeks of a PPI endoscopy, which is usually normal. Um, and then they go on to long-term PPI, um, use with maybe endoscopy every year or two. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Now, some treatment algorithms talk about using serology, and 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 that's the thing. Like it, it's an option if you're in an environment with much lower. Like our H. pylori serology positivity rate is probably like 85 percent. And if you read guidelines, they talk about you know if you're in five percent to fifteen percent regions, then maybe if you have a positive serology, you might empirically treat. For um for um with the HP pack and stuff, so it's just because in my region or in the region I work, our H pylori serology rate is much much higher, right? Yeah, absolutely. Much, we have a lot of we have a lot of people who have who have normal uh, or who have positive serologies who have normal scopes, right? Like they have H pylori, they they've been exposed to H pylori before. I guess if you're practicing somewhere with a much much lower rate of just baseline H pylori serology, um uh, um, uh, um H pylori exposure then the serology can be used as that initial sort of discrimination to decide, okay, if you're in positive serology territory, then I'll treat you with an HPAP. But just keep in mind, we're ha you, you can have issues with H. pylori resistance, right? Yeah, um, um, the PAC which is, you know, um, um, usually PAC, right, pantoprazole or, or some type of PPI, um, um, amoxicillin and clarithromycin, you tend to get resistance to the clarithromycin component, right? Yeah. Um, um, now they're actually, if you go to your regional lab, they can actually get you, um, um, if you have that data, what's the actual resistance rate of the H. pylori to the clarithromycin, which is usually the culprit one that it gets resistance to first, right? Absolutely. So you can kind of say, okay, should we be doing one-week regime? versus two-week regimes versus just flipping up, you know, in areas of high resistance so that we're not using the clarithromycin at all. You're using like flagyl and tetracycline and bismuth and quadruple therapy or so, right? Yeah. So when you look at H. pylori, you know, you don't just want to take this blanket statement and say, you know, so many guidelines talk about this, but you want to look at what are the rates of how many people with positive serology actively have active H. pylori infection, right? If you're in an environment where a lot of people have positive uh, serologies where you're pushing 80 85 percent then the discriminating the using h pylori to discriminate um, um active h pylori infection versus not infection is going to be useless right if you're in an environment where okay the average person is not exposed so therefore if you have dyspeptic symptoms and you have positive serology there's a lot higher likelihood that you actually have a huge h pylori infection then it can become some use the question is so which type of environment you're practicing in, right? To know what the next move is going to be. Yeah, exactly. And not to not to slag the test, because the test is actually really good. It's it's very it's you know greater than ninety percent sensitive and specific. 
The problem yeah. is, is that it's, uh, you know, that sensitivity is useful as a rule out test if you have a low prevalence. But, exactly. but the, the, the flip side of it is, is like what we've mentioned is it, it, that antibody titer remains positive for a long time after the H. pylori goes away. Um, and, yes. and patients can self clear H. pylori as well. So it's not just, you know, if they've done the, the HP pack. So that's why I don't find it particularly useful because, you know, people either get infected or reinfected here so much that it basically remains positive all the time. Exactly, exactly. So, so serology, our, I guess our notes on serology, if you're working in an area where you know the prevalence rate, you're not dealing with 80% of people that are H. pylori serology positive, where the rates are a lot lower than that, then if you have somebody that presents with um, uh, um, no red flags, who comes inside with persistent dyspepsic symptoms, then, uh, then, then a positive serology in that particular context may be a branch point for you to, dis- d- d- um, uh, um, to decide on treating um, uh, empirically for H. pylori. But the key thing is, is that you want to get away from, from, from kind of cookie cutter algorithms and start asking yourself the questions, right? What are the rates of my baseline rates of H. pylori positive serology, right? Yeah. Like how many people go for scopes that actually have positive serology that actually have positive ulcers that they actually see? And what are my rates of actually resistance, right? Health departments are starting to quote those things um, 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 so that you know that crap, I'm dealing in an uh, I'm somewhere where a lot of the H. pylori is resistant to to clarithromycin, right? So that change that might change what regime I use. Right, absolutely. Perfect. Does that sound reasonable, Dr. Brady Bouchard? Beautiful, man. Perfect. So excellent. So now we got to talk about H. pylori. So let's say you have somebody biopsy comes back. Or you've decided your prevalence rate where you've um, um, and you can get that data from public health. Um, um, you've decided to treat them based on a positive serology because your H. pylori rate isn't that high, quote unquote. Um, um, so you've decided to do serology and it comes back positive and you decide to treat them. What is your treatment for H. pylori? Dr. Brady Bouchard. Yeah, so we talk about uh, HP packs, um, yes. which um, are a mixed blessing, I think, because obviously it saves us time and and you don't end up screwing up the prescription, but like you, what you alluded to before, um, the HP pack is a is a set regiment that, uh, at least in my experience, hasn't really changed as our sensitivities have changed. Exactly. So our our population health uh, group is pretty good about you know putting out recommendations for for doing HP eradication, not using the pack. Exactly. Exactly. So your traditional sort of H pack. Um, you know, was was you know the the pack AC component standard for amoxicillin and clarithromycin combined with a PPI, and traditionally you treat for um, like a week's duration. And and again, because we gave out so many of these things, because we we were doing indiscriminate serologies on everybody in people without probably active um, H. pylori infection who might have just been exposed years ago and now they don't have a current um, um, active infection, it's really changed the resistance patterns, right? Um, 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 the, the H. pylori tends to get resistance. The culprit antibiotic is usually the clarithromycin, right? So the macrolide antibiotic that's inside um, um, that's inside there. So, so a lot of H. pylori uh, um, um, eradication regime now are actually a two-week regime instead of the older one-week regime, right? And depending if you're in an environment where the rates of clarithromycin resistance are higher than about 15 to 20%, they might actually want you to use quadruple therapy 
on something that does not have a clarithromycin in it, right? So that was things like flagell, tetracycline, some bismuth, and a PPI for a two-week treatment course, right? So, or if you're retreating somebody, right? They go inside, um, um, they have bad ulcers, they grew H. pylori, you treated them with a, a traditional H. pack, and now they come back after a period of time and they have the same thing again, you might be dealing with H. pylori resistance. Don't give them the same treatment regime as before. Yeah, and our, our population health here is switched. So, so usually the two antibiotics are amoxicillin and clarithromycin, um, but we switched here to metronidazole or flagyl and uh, tetracycline. Yeah, exactly. And, that, and that's what we do here as well, too, because the, 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 the problem is the clarithromycin resistance is higher than 15 to 20 percent, right? right? So even if you're treating people with a traditional H-pack, um, um, you're going to be giving them an antibody, one of the antibiotics that's just going to be encouraging more resistance, right? Um, um, so yeah, we've switched as well, too. So our first time is actually quadruple therapy, right? So the key thing is in medicine, you want to get away with antibiotics, you want to get away from the cookie cutters and start looking looking at your resistance patterns in your community. Does that make sense? Speak to your public health lab, speak to your hospital, because they often have this data so that you can make rational clinical decisions in opposed to just following some book somewhere, right? Because a book somewhere is based on a treatment guideline for somewhere else likely different than from where you practice, right? Yeah. Um, um, in other centers, it may be perfectly reasonable to use your, because they have a much lower rate of clarithromycin resistance, um, um, to use your um, uh, amount amoxicillin and clarithromycin um, to use that regime as a first-line regime. I, I find that most regimes now are switching to a two-week regime as opposed to the older one-week regime. Yep. Do you find it as well, too? Yeah, that's pretty common. And, and our first line here is still one week, but uh, often we end up going to a two-week. Um, exactly. And it's a, you know, it's a common second-line therapy. And I just wanted to put in the plug here that the Rx files, which, which a lot of docs in, in Canada are familiar I with but yeah it comes out of saskatchewan from saskatchewan yeah That's from it, Bouchard's hometown. i know and it's uh it's a lovely little book but they have a a good summary of uh first uh and second line uh, treatment regimens for h pylori basically going through all your options including side effects and cost and all that stuff so Perfect, perfect. So the key take-home message is that when you're deciding to treat H. pylori, you really have to look at your local resistance patterns, right? Or get what your local health department, um, 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 you discuss with your local health department if you can get that data, right? Because you want to be able to deliver um, tailored therapy as opposed to just cookie cutter from some guideline off in some city somewhere. Does that make sense? Yeah, so traditional HPAC is your one-week regime of a mix amoxicillin and clarithromycin and the PPI. But keep in mind, A, we're seeing a lot more clarithromycin resistance. If you have a lot of more clarithromycin resist uh, 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 resistance, you may want you're gonna see a lot more two-week regimes of your traditional clarithromycin one, or using uh, 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 regimes that do not have the clarithromycin in them. So two weeks of of um, of tetracycline, two weeks of flagell, two weeks of bismuth. Bismuth and and a PPI, right? So that's becoming more. So that was our failed regime first, right? So if you had the one week regime, you didn't do very well. We would give you that two regime, two week regime of that that so called failed regime, right? Yeah. But keep in mind, if you're in an environment where the person has a positive urea breath 
uh, um, 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 test, and you know that 35% of your of your isolates are resistant to clarithromycin, you may want to go with that other regime as first line, right? And then you have these third line regimes that use fluoroquinolones, right? So you may see some fluoroquinolone um, thrown in there with the amoxicillin um, for a couple with the PPI for a couple weeks, but those tend to be your third line um, 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 regimes, right? So the key thing is if you can get data from your public health department on the resistance rate. That's going to be where the money is. Right. Beautiful. Does that sound like a fair, a fair assessment, Dr. Brady Bouchard? Yeah, I think you did a lovely job, Mike. Nice work. So you know what? I, I want to spend about like two minutes talking about this. Keep in mind, you're going to have a lot of people that are going to have, no, um, 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 they're going to have no red flags. You're going to start them off on conservative treatment. Um, um, they're they're going to get the PPI um, for eight weeks. They're still going to have symptoms after they stop. They're going to get a scope along the way. The scope is going to come back perfectly normal, right? And they're going to do H. pylori biopsies, and the biopsies are going to grow nothing. So they don't have H. pylori, right? And remember, there's whole functional dyspeptic syndromes, right, or uh, functional dyspeptic uh, conditions. So exactly like Brady Bouchard mentioned, you have some syndromes that are kind of associated with this epigastric pain or burning. Um, you have some syndromes. You know, Rome criteria that we have for irritable bowel, the same thing is the spine for dyspeptic syndromes, right? So you have some that are associated with early uh, um, satiety, some that are associated with more epigastric pain or burning, um, 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 some that are associated with most poor postprandial fullness. So you could be making at the end of the day the di diagnosis of functional dyspeptic syndrome and i think that actually is a big proportion of people would you agree dr brady bouchard yeah absolutely um functional dyspepsia of course requiring endoscopy first of all though exactly exactly so you basically ruled out badness structurally this is not cancer this is not barrett's this is not some this is like you get an egd that's essentially negative because we have a lot of patients like that and i think that's pretty you know we have a lot of patients um like that who who get Basically, get the EGD and the surgeon says, I don't see much going on here accounting for this person's symptoms, right? right. And they just really have uh, um, um, any red flags or so, right? So just keep in mind that you're going to get a, a large number of patients in that category as well. Exactly. And keep in mind those lifestyle stuff that you recommend is really, really important because, again, it's like irritable bowel. We don't really have good evidence for much medications. You usually try a tricyclic. You usually might try some of antidepressants. But, again, when you actually scrutinize the evidence, there's not really that much hardcore evidence for those medications working. There's something to try, but, again, lifestyle interventions are probably where the money's at. Beautiful. Nice summary, Mike. Oh, Brady Bouchard. Nailed it for another week. Enjoy the rest of your weekend, Mike. All right, you enjoy the rest of your weekend. Take care.